Welcome to the Tragedy Academy, where you are the teacher and we are the students. Together, we will learn from past tragedy to lay the foundation for a better humanity. The only supplies you'll need, an open mind and a sense of humor. So, tilt that chair back, talk out of turn, and never raise your hand, because this is the Tragedy Academy, and classes in session, not pure scholar. I don't take anything seriously. I stopped three years ago. I I, I did as soon as I found out who my uh, you know uh, family was when I was about three months old. I never took anything seriously ever again. That's amazing. That and that's how you open up a show, actually. Welcome to the Tragedy Academy, a show created to bridge societal divides in a judgment-free zone using candor and humor. My name is Jay, and my co-host Gary's in studio today. How are you doing, Gary? Great. How are you doing? I am so good today. So excited. Today we are joined by the legendary Ellie Neidhart, uh, wife of the past Jim the Anvil Neidhart, the legend. And she has graced us with her presence today and going to share uh, some stories, some anecdotes and different things from her times in her life, as well as her time with Jim. Um, we're super excited to hear about it. Um, I myself, this is the era that I grew up in. And I think the first time I met you, Ellie, I had uh, I came up to you and I told you, thank you. Um, I didn't even know who you were until my wife pointed you out. And for some reason, I just. I wanted to say that because that era, there was such a limited amount of information that we could take in or entertainment. And that little bit that we received was from your husband. You know, every week it gave us an escape and it was the coolest escape ever. And I still on the show want to thank you because I realize that's a lot of sacrifice to have somebody in the entertainment industry like that gone so long every year. So this is me geeking out a little bit. Your husband was super cool to me and I appreciate you and what you sacrificed, you know, for us, for him to be able to do that. Oh, well, thanks very much for the kind words uh, towards him. He was uh, one of a kind. And uh, as far as the wrestling world goes, uh, you know, he fit the mold perfectly. You know, he was basically the same person uh, inside the wrestling ring and uh, at home. You know, he's just, that's how he was, you know. Jim the Anvil was the anvil at home. And oh, the... yes, he was. Really? Because that's actually one of the questions I had. You know, that he was the anvil to all of us when we watched him. You know, that's there's a certain amount of persona that we assume is is in that that role. But I'm mean, from what you're telling me, he was he lived it. Oh, he was uh, uh, one of a kindest. They said in Cool Hand Luke George Kennedy actually said it. Uh, you know, he's he was uh, an original. The first time I ever met him was uh, with uh, my dad. Uh, he, he called my dad. He wanted to get into wrestling. Somebody in California told him about uh, my dad, and um, he called my dad on the phone. He wanted to learn how to do amateur wrestling, and uh, someone told him, a guy named Malin Wiltz, who had a gym, a bodybuilding gym in California, told him that he had a million-dollar body in the uh, wrestling business. And uh, so... Um, he ended up uh, uh, calling my dad and uh, asking my dad if my dad would be interested in training him and how much money he'd need to get up here. So he sent my dad his resume, and, you know, it was a fairly, uh, you know, uh, major. Uh, he had, uh, you know, stuff about his football career in uh, high school and stuff, and 
a lot of times uh, wrestlers in the day would send up these uh, really major things looking like they had all this to offer. And then you'd see them and instead of being six foot one, they were actually only like five foot seven and never played ball or did anything in there. <laughs> For those of you in podcast line, Gary just raised his hand with the five foot one piece. <laughs> so they, my mother wasn't expecting Jim to be anything from the little resume that he sent up in the mail to my uh, dad. My mom was kind of rolling her eyes like, oh, we're going to get another one of these guys that, uh, you know, are going to have to, uh, you know, kind of uh, say sorry, but you're not. Uh... But anyway, long story short, uh, Jim was much more than uh, anything my dad could have ever imagined. And so my dad took him into the basement and uh, when he finally got him up to Calgary on $50, my dad told him to bring up $50. He came up on a Greyhound bus with $50 to his name and... Uh, he, I think, was just uh, smitten with my dad as my dad was with him because they were both unbelievable athletes. And uh, my dad had been amateur champion of Canada at one time. And so, well, for those of you who don't know, I mean, you come from a legendary family. Your your brother is Bret Hart. Your father's Stu Hart. That's the Calgary Stampede. This is where we got all of our wrestling from. They were very iconic. Uh, um, the Stampede wrestling was uh, like no other wrestling that's ever been to me. It's the best wrestling that's ever existed. But um, aside from all that, my dad took Jim into the basement and taught him all kinds of amateur stuff in uh, in the dungeon, yeah. You don't want your father-in-law taking you somewhere called the dungeon. Yeah, I was wondering what the basement <laughs> in Calgary looked like back in the day. It, was like, it wasn't like all finished. Dad's and... <laughs> house was this old mansion that was like a 22-room old thing that ha you'd think that there were wolves howling outside the door in the wintertime. It was like, kind of like that. and. It was uh, absolutely crummy, you know, cats and dogs and people going in and out. And my mother never cleaned in her life. There was spider webs, cobwebs. <laughs> I love this. Yeah, it was a real haunted house. And uh, I mean, I think it legitimately was haunted. But anyway, so Jim was fascinated by all of it. I think he was not expecting anything that he got. It was very surreal. And uh, after my dad got through with uh, Jim, he brought him upstairs into the kitchen and uh, introduced me. And of course, my dad had always told us uh, the girls... Never, ever watched the wrestling when we were little. It was just strictly for the boys, and I had eight brothers. So, And um, so, and told us never to date wrestlers because they were uh, ne'er-do-wells. You know, they were, had you know, <laughs> yeah, nefarious intentions, to put it mildly. So anyway, so I was uh, quite uh, rude to Jim when I first met him, not realizing that I was quite curt with him, not, you know, overly nice or anything, kind of a bit standoffish, thinking that was the way to be. And, of course, Jim was uh, smitten with my dad first, I think. They had a, a bromance right away, and then I, I ended up, uh, he ended up uh, liking me, but he stayed up there because he was really uh, fascinated by my dad. And uh, then, you know, about a year later, things kind of burgeoned with us. You know, we kind of uh, ended up with a who, relationship. Who pursued who first? Oh, it was definitely him. A hundred percent him. hundred percent Jim. How did, yeah. how did he, um, how did he pursue well, the first time that I ever went out on a date with Jim, uh, he uh, wanted to know if I uh, wanted a, 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 do, a doobie. And I was like, what the hell is a doobie? <laughs> I had no idea because I'm from, um, you know. You're from Canada and Calgary. Canada, and he's from L.A. And, uh, you know, he was very chilled. He was probably the hippest person I'd ever met in my life. But, uh, you know, he was uh, very foreign because he was from California and he was huge. He was about 310 at the time. And had not an ounce of fat on him. He was this big muscular shot putter who had just, uh, you know, uh, placed uh, like third in the world in Russia about two years before. He'd been over in, uh, yeah, he was a legitimately uh, world's class athlete, football, shot putting, track and field, 
He was like, like unbelievable. So anyway, it was all, this was just kind of overwhelming to me. And, um, but uh, yeah, so he kind of, uh, you know, kept on asking my brother Bruce why I wouldn't go out with him. And I was like, I, I remember one time he came to the house on a Saturday night. My dad actually gave him the uh, night off so he could take me out on a date and uh, taking me to this really fancy restaurant. And I told him that I was busy cleaning the house and that I couldn't, uh, and he said, you'd rather clean the house and go out for a nice, and I said, yes, I would. So that was kind of, so he <laughs> left me alone for about uh, four months. And then finally, my brother Bruce said, just really wants to just take you out on a nice date. And, you know, you've got nothing to lose. If, you know, if worst case scenario is you'll get a free meal out of it. So This is that, true. Yeah. And, and um, finally, when I went out, like, for a real date with him, we ended up watching Lady and the Tramp at a drive-in movie theater. And that was one of the things that we did because I wanted to see that. And uh, He's smooth. That is a smooth choice. For a first date, Lady and the Tramp, it's very soft. It's loving, romantic. It's not overbearing. That's a smooth move. And he was really quite sweet. He was never, uh, you know, a pushover. He was actually a very shy guy. But 40 years later, you know, we had three kids and, uh, you know, uh, really quite crazy about each other. And it was destiny, you know. He, 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 the minute that he called my dad was uh, a part of a destiny that he didn't even know uh, that was, you know, I always feel that was supposed to be that way. Like we were, we would have never met except that it was, uh, you know, out of our control. So I really believe I, that. I would even say that um, it sounds like your father's, friendship with him was the only gateway that he could have come through to meet you. And the fact that he approved of him ahead of it is, is probably a great thing. Oh yeah. Getting past eight brothers and the dad, like, you know, he's a good guy. If they even let him near the, you. I'm not walking <laughs> into the heart household looking for dates. No way. If I go, they have eight brothers and this is my dad. I'm like, Oh, okay. I left something in my car. You're never seeing me again. <laughs> all of them, all of them wrestlers. Yeah. I'm like, Oh, they're like, where are you going? The guys? more he saw of it, the more he wanted you know, it's like he just he couldn't get enough of our crazy family. And uh, he has one sister who he was close to, Debbie, and that was it, no brothers or anything. And then, uh, you know, he met, when he, you know, married me, he, uh, you know, married, uh, you know, eight brothers plus Davy Boy and uh, Dynamite were very close to him too. So like, he just got this, you know, talk about, uh, you know, testosterone-filled, uh, you know, uh, you know, like he got, got it all. So it was... Uh, yeah, the, that whole entire era and gimmick, and and I, I hate even saying the word gimmick because it's not. It was such a a great display of characters and you know the the plot lines and the way that everybody interacted with each other. But there was acrobatic and you know it seemed like they were constantly putting themselves in so much danger. And that actually leads me to a question because you're going to have a different perspective coming from such a, a huge wrestling family. But when the love of your life is out there putting his, you know, life on the line for entertainment in some situations, was there ever a time where something was brought up that he should do or they might try that you said absolutely not? No, I never knew. You know, funny thing with uh, the wrestling, I've always uh, protected and defended uh, uh, anything that was, uh, you know, maybe considered, uh, Ill, you know, illegitimate or fake. No way. But, um, you know, that's just how we kind of rolled. And Jim never discussed any of the wrestling element with me ever, you know, and I never went to any of the wrestling matches ever, except for maybe uh, when WrestleMania or Hall of Fame or something where we, we had to be there. It's like he kind of, and I always just respected that because that's always how it was with, um, you know, my dad too. The boys just quietly did their thing and, and never brought it home really outside of, uh, you know, like just in the gym, you know, so that's just how it was. So if anything ever happened, I, I never knew about it till 
you know, the next day. <laughs> when he when he told you what he did and then you were mad at what he did because of what he risked or? <laughs> I, you know, I never, and it was never a time that I ever um, was mad about anything that happened to him in the ring because I just respected that it was, uh, that everybody was doing the Their best art. they could. Yeah, to, and, and it's very physical, the wrestling, but, you know, they, they, and they would, uh, you know, travel on the road together so much that uh, they kind of got to, you know, talk about what they would be uh, maybe uh, going to be trying or doing. And so I, uh, you know, just like with a football game or anything and all the passes and uh, things that go on, uh, you know, you just kind of respected that they would just do what they were going to do. And if by any uh, remote chance that somebody ended up with an injury or something, which happens, you know, of course, I would respect that it was... Uh, you know, not intentional and uh, just uh, deal with it. You know, I never had any time where I ever had any animosity towards anybody for uh, that's, anything that's good like to that. Hear. It gives him a safe environment to work with him without any clouded judgment or thinking of, of what could possibly yeah, happen. Never... That's amazing. Amazing way to look at it. Them as entertainers is I've worked for the UFC for the last 20 years almost. And I work with professional athletes a lot and the entertainment part, there's a lot of people that are athletic and physical and could probably learn the moves and stuff like that. But to entertain people, to be on, um, and that part impressed me. Like, I'm usually never on a microphone. Yesterday, I screwed this all up. Like, I'm always behind the camera. Like, I get nervous, like, and I've interviewed 10,000 people before. But, like, for them to be able to turn it on, be physical, when they actually get hurt out there, but not oh, yeah. to let on. You know, like my arm is broken right now, but I'm not like, oh, like in a real fight, you tap out and it's over. But they're like, I got to finish the match and like to entertain people and like the interviews and to sell in and cut the promos. Like to me, that's almost more impressive. Like I grew up in Cleveland around tons of athletes and obviously I you know, couldn't play football in those. But like having that ability and then figuring out how to be an entertainer too and like play a character enough where it's believable, but like, I think the best characters are ones that are really themselves, but turn it up a notch. That's what it is. You have to be a, a character to begin with, to really fit into the world of wrestling, be different from the day, uh, you know, you were old enough to talk and realize that, uh, you know, you weren't like other people or that you were a little bit more flamboyant or, uh, you know, centric and yeah, they wore pink, like, men didn't wear pink like back that. then. Like they got guys wearing pink in my neighborhood in East Cleveland, which the With hood tassels. And, like tassels, it would have never been a thing. Like <laughs> pimps would maybe, maybe pull it off, but we're wearing pink shirts all of a sudden. And we're like, I'm Manville and he's Bret Hart. And like, yep. Like that was uh, broke down things that people wouldn't do. Yeah. You know? To kind of have a, you have to have passion for the wrestling world and, and uh, really just uh, love what you were doing, but have a good sense of humor about things. And most of the wrestlers uh, are more upbeat than not. Like they see the glass as half full and that's why they can deal with uh, being on the road uh, over 300 uh, days of the year and dealing with uh, not being around their uh, spouses. And, uh, you know, like, but they, you know, they're always upbeat. Like, you know, my husband was actually very, and my brother, Brett and Owen and. Uh, you have to uh, love it. Like they, yeah, they're very upbeat. Absolutely. You know, and my dad was uh always uh you know like such a happy person and, and i have to say most of the wrestlers that i know like they're all huge animal lovers like they're really great guys like there's a you know very few of them that i uh you know would ever uh say anything bad about you know i would i would second that and uh, gary and i were talking the other day about you know wrestling we were geeking out a little bit about you coming on and one of the things that i always loved about wrestling was the fact that the first 10 rows at every event that you show up at has people with 
disabilities, people with special needs or any kind of person that would, you know, or you see that they bring children and people that are, you know, they don't have the ability to get to these things and they're catering to those first few rows more than anybody else. You'll watch wrestlers have so much fun with a kid that thinks that it is real as, you know, real can be and enjoy it. It's, it's amazing to watch, but I do want to point out the acting thing. I think that wrestlers are the best actors ever, especially during that era, because how many of us believed it was real for so long? And you're, you're getting punched in the face while you're acting like take That's Tom, amazing. Cruise, time Tom Cruise and start dropping him on his head and tell him to like stay in character and like Can't. deliver the lines and like adapt. Like I know they have like maybe a loose script, but it goes left and you got to just change and go with it and like be real in the moment. And like, that's, that's tough. My dad always uh, defended the wrestling so much that when we were little, we never, ever had a clue that it was uh, a work. And uh, most of it, you know, it's, uh, I always I'm, say that the only ones who know what's real are the wrestlers, you know, because that's really kind of how I look at it. But, um, you know, I remember when, when my dad was doing an angle with Archie Goldie and he was called the Stomper and they put a, a cast on his arm. Doctor Speak, actually. My dad's actual legitimate doctor had the cast on my dad's arm and then uh, my dad sawed it down the thing so he could take it off and on. But the kids never knew that. And I remember when we were going to school and uh, they were all asking us how my dad's arm was and stuff. And then we were like, you know, it's doing okay. You know, we never knew the, uh, but we, we never, you know, kind of um, ever, to this day, I still kind of defend legitimacy of uh, the wrestling as an actual sport, not just it's entertainment world. And Vince kind of uh, Vince McMahon uh, kind of shifted it into a different dynamic, which is just the way they had to do with dealing with uh, whatever the uh, situations were at the time. But I uh, still don't like to ever like I defend it. Still, you sh you should absolutely it's, holds those and maneuvers and like. Be able to do all these things properly, the technical abilities of it. They're all pretty good amateur wrestlers. The ones that like that came from Calgary, like my brothers were all uh, unbelievable amateur wrestlers. And uh, Jim learned a lot of amateur from my dad before he ever uh, got into WWE. There were uh, four years of um, really strong training in Calgary where Jim got his roots. So he's wrestling like Junkyard Dog and Jake Roberts. These guys are all love that. Still, every time there's a chain around, I put it around my neck and pretend I'm the Junkyard Dog like any time. My friend, my friend Nick wouldn't let me put his parrot on my shoulder and pretend to be Coco B. Oh. the other day. Coco, oh, he's, <laughs> he and, he and Jim and uh, Owen all had, uh, had fun together. I hurt myself jumping off everything being Coco Beware and Jimmy Superfly Snuka as a kid. Like it was, it was our soap opera. Like we, it really was. We didn't have stuff like that. I had three channels. I'm in my forties. I grew up in Cleveland. We were poor. Like we had three channels, like Saturday and main event or something would come on. Like, and you never knew cause there's no TV guide or anything. And we'd wait every Saturday yeah, it was Saturday. on and we were never happier than it was Saturday like morning, randomly. Saturday yeah. morning and Saturday afternoon. And Gene Gene Okerlund on there, Bobby, the brain Heenan, all of them talking. Good guys. All of them, you know, like they were all, uh, dear friends to Jim, you know, and they were our family too. That's so, that's honestly the way it looked like to us. I can tell you that, um, you know, the, the family that I grew up in much like Gary, you know, it was, a, it was a poor family, not many channels. We live in the middle of nowhere and th things weren't always going the greatest at home. However, Saturday morning, when that came on, nobody was fighting. Everybody was enjoying it. It was a time where it was like a ceasefire. 
and everybody was happy. And that's honestly the thanks that I feel like everybody wants to give wrestlers because it, it gives you that vacation, uh, you know, from your life. And it's a mindful moment. I always tell people when they come on the show, we have mindful moments in which we create things and we dedicate our mindful moments to other people. We haven't been using them ourselves. So as creators, it, the onus is on us to utilize the mindful moments with which we create for good, for something that is going to affect change or give people that escape, not, you know, give them the anxiety or anything like that. And that's why I think, honestly, it's because it, it really is the peace of mind that you get during that moment, watching somebody authentically do the craziest shit that you could ever watch. In um, the day, and I think it's like that a little bit now, but uh, back when my dad's territory was around and Vince's was uh, getting going in the 80s, I think what the fans loved was that if they had a really rotten SOB of a boss, which a lot of them did, um, they could uh, go home and get it out of their uh, system screaming. And the wrestlers, their personas were meant to kind of get the fans going behind it, but their passion and everything that they did was, uh, uh, you know, that, that's what I think why wrestling still exists to this day, because you can go home and uh, really like uh, just like everything, the whole week of stress and just uh, all be obliterated in, uh, you know, a good hour of, uh, you know, watch, watching good guy beat the bad guy kind of thing, which is what it's about. That's a great point to bring up. And that's that transference that we have. We get so locked up in our day to day lives and we have all of this pent up anger or anxiety and when you see that kind of situation you get they're actually helping you release the same issue you have with your boss with vince mcmahon or something like that they're they are picking select groups that they represent slices of the pie and giving them that voice and, and that's that's a great way to put it, it seemed diverse too like way back in the day when there wasn't like a lot of black people or different ethnicities, Iron Cheek, like there wasn't a lot of different people, it seemed like on TV growing up and like, but wrestling always had everybody and yeah. going to the events. Now I have a friend that works for the WWE and I have young nephews and they're huge fans. So it was a while, you know, 10 year period where I didn't really watch much. And then I started bringing them and it's every walk of life. I never see any arguments, fight. I mean, they'll argue because of the wrestlers they like, but not like real, but you'll see every walk of life. I love it old, yeah. young, black, white, mixed, like everybody is at these events and like, you don't hear politics. You don't hear religion. No. You don't hear any BS. No, just like people are just having a men good time. And women too. That's one of the cool things about that sport is that it, it really is men and women together in it and competing at such a high level with each other. And I think that's a rare thing in the sports world to see male and female athletes getting the opportunity to perform at such a high level as equals. Yeah, that's we don't, point. we don't really give them that opportunity. And that's that's one of the things that's so great about that whole entire industry. Yeah, it's a different world with uh, wrestling than any other, uh, you know, uh, uh, job. And I think it's what you said, diversity and uh, respect for each other. And there's there's uh, no uh, room for uh, politics there, really, you know. Yeah, and unless it's part of the act from back in the 80s, because the Iron Sheik really did. Uh, he took he took a lot of the pent up communist and Middle Eastern rage of America out on him in the middle of that ring every single. I loved him though. I was camel clutching camel people clutch. all the time. My brother was in the camel clutch probably most of his childhood. <laughs> Iron Cheek was uh, uh, came up to Calgary and wrestled for my dad long before he was in WWE, and uh, he was a uh, uh, great guy. He was uh, one of my husband's best friends. Uh, Cosro was his first name, but um, but he he was just. Uh, 
such a uh, wonderful, and he was a very good amateur uh, athlete. Like he, he could probably annihilate anybody that ever got too close to him. Pissed him off, but he I wouldn't probably wouldn't him. do that. No, <laughs> no, I probably still wouldn't. I think he's still around. But guys like that uh, don't have to great, be mean they, and they, tough. And they yeah. never, the, the thing about um, guys like him and Nikolai and stuff, they were just these big pussycats, you know. When um, my husband used to wrestle for Bill Watts in, uh, uh, gosh, Louisiana, but Nikolai was, and Barry Darso, and uh, they would always uh, come and knock at the door when Jim was wrestling in Japan, and, they, and we were living, stuck in uh, this uh little spot, Old Hammond Highway anyway. But uh, Nikolai would end up uh, knocking at the door and Barry just to make sure that we were okay. And Jenny was, they were just babies, my guys. All three of them were like under three years old. So it's kind of, uh, but that's just, they were big softies mostly. I, I could imagine so, because when you're, when you're that kind of, you know, loving person for all those people in those front rows, you're, you're the same outside of that too. You can't not be. You don't have to act tough if you are tough. Yeah, you this know? is true. Like you can act like a teddy bear. Like could beat anybody up. I'm the, you know, five, five guy at the bar, like chirping to like, you know, act tough. Not the guy that could actually beat up. You know? <laughs> they were always very kind to kids too. Like that was like, they're just the way they were. They were just always really gentle giants. Yeah. They love children and animals. I'm telling you, they're really gentle giants. People don't understand wrestling or wrestlers. They think that because of the uh, image that they portray, but they're uh, all such, uh, you know, softies, you know. That's great to hear. It makes it even better um, to know that one of those guys are out there one minute biting a turnbuckle and the next minute they're holding, you know, a, a little itty bitty Pomeranian dog. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> but it always happens that way. And we've, we've been saying a lot of great things about, about Jim and that career, but I really want to, I want to ask, we're in a day and age where there are so many ways to communicate with each other. And we see that you had mentioned 300 days. Or more. Yeah, or more. 300 days or more as a single mother at home maintaining a love and relationship with a husband that's traveling everywhere is something that we couldn't even fathom today. How did you get through that? Well, today is Mother's Day, so I have to I know. Say, Happy uh, Mother's Day. Thank you. Uh, how I got through it, quite honestly, is that I had wonderful kids. My husband was gone all the time, and so it's just me and my kids living by ourselves most of the time. We were not living in Canada. We were on our own. And we just had this uh, unbelievable, uh, you know, friendship with each other. And my kids were uh, always making me laugh and we would just do stuff. And it was uh, what got me through everything. And then when my husband would come home for the, <laughs> the maybe uh, two or three days that he got to come home and bring home a little bribery, a little doll or something for each of them and uh, promise them that they got to go to 7-Eleven for, for the, uh, you know, cheap candy. And uh, that was it. And, we, you know, it, and that was how it always was. You know, I just got through it because my kids were so good. My dad was always there for me. You know, I had about a million dollars in phone bills at the time. I was going to say, what's it like, you know, dropping quarters into a payphone outside of a motel in 1982? It was like a million dollars. AT&T owned everything then. Phone bills were expensive. You never think that way. Yeah. I mean, now it's like a cell phone, FaceTime, whatever. Back then it was like half the rent. Yeah. Half the rent for a call over 30 minutes. It was across the country. It would be ridiculous. So, I mean, that's why I ask. I mean, was there, how were, if you could tell people today ways that they could foster that kind of loving relationship with that kind of separation, what would you tell them were some of the ways that they could do that? Um, quite honestly, just uh, be uh, kind to each other when you're with each other to 
kind of, uh, you know, hope that whatever, you know, you instill in each other is there when the, the passion's there when they're you're not around each other. And, uh, you know, family is the most integral thing in our lives, you know, which it always has been in mine. So, you know, that I couldn't say more than that. And, uh, you know, if he's being a really, really rotten, just, uh, you know, put a can of half-open sardines in his bag and let him know that you're... <laughs> <laughs> Did this happen? Whoa! No, just slip that in there. <laughs> it, that never happened. I think I saw it on uh, an old gangster, oh, that's, gangster movie or That's something. amazing, though. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, gee, you might not get back to Las Vegas without sardines in your bag. <laughs> oh, man. I hate fish, <laughs> too. I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's too easy to grab a hold of. <laughs> but no, we just you know had to respect each other and uh, be there for each other when when he was home and, uh, you know, hope that, uh, when he was on the road that he was, uh, you know, every, all the time we spent when, uh, we were together, it paid off That's how it really was. And then a lot of long distance phone calls. I mean, what I hear is making sure that you're mindful when you're with your, with the person that you love, that you're not thinking about the future or the past. You're actually enjoying the time that you have together in the moment. And I think that that's very important and that most people should practice what they preach when it comes to things like that. Yeah, we really did. For 40 years, I, I had, uh, you know, such, uh, you know, a wonderful relationship. And it wasn't all, uh, you know, uh, you know, just uh, sunshine and roses either. Of course you not. Know, but uh, it, it was uh, very legitimate where we really uh, loved each other. And uh, that's still, to this day, I you was know, the only person in my life outside of my children. So. You don't see people as successful as they are in their careers or as happy as they are in their roles if their familial unit isn't solid or that they don't have the support at home to go with it, or at least some form of people that they have chosen in their life that, that acts as a surrogate family or something along that lines. That's the backbone, isn't it? Yeah. It really is. And, and I didn't see that my whole, my whole childhood, you know, I often looked at everything else going around me instead of what was actually happening in front of me. And the more that I realized that everything else was kind of not in the now, it wasn't here with me in this exact moment. It made me realize that, you know, my family and my friends are the closest thing to me at any given time. And that that's really what matters. The rest of it's just BS. Yeah, it's cotton candy, you know, compared to the, it's, I like that. It just melts in your mouth, but it's not real, you know. But having, like my dad having 12 kids and then the wrestling business and, you know, taking care of the wrestlers too and, uh, you know, never ever once let anybody down, you know, and, and that, that was a strong skeleton, strong, like he was a tree trunk with all the limbs. But, you know, and that's uh, how uh, I've raised my kids and, you know, I, and then uh, my husband, uh, you know, needed that. And then he had all my brothers too. It's like, you know, you just kept on uh, being, you know, like this big unit. And I think that's what helped us get through everything. And uh, to this day, everybody in my family, you know, all my brothers and sisters, we you know, all uh, just, you know, adored Jim, you know, despite things, you know, that sometimes went to miss, you know, he was always just, everybody, you know, had such strong, you know, devotion to each other, you know. You could have fights on the road and stuff. And as soon as you get home, it was like, uh, you know, what are you going to have for Sunday dinner? You know, and that was just the way it was. There was never anybody ever like uh, any animosity or anything. It was just it was really strong. You know? Do you think people were able to get through things more back then? Like relationships are just people bail so quickly now. But yeah. you said it wasn't all sunshine and roses, but you worked through it. You stayed Always. together. You guys figured it out as a family and as, as a couple. Yep. Now it seems like it gets a little hard and people just go, you know, they just break up or they do, you know, whatever. And. Do you think it was harder these days to do that, or do you think we're just not as good of people? Mm, I 
think it's not that it's harder. I think that people don't maybe want to uh, put the effort in if they're not sure, you know. And in my case, I mm. knew as soon as we were together uh, long enough to really realize that this was to be, it was like a destiny. Yeah. When we're not authentic in anything that we do, especially love, we can't expect somebody else to love us back if we don't authentically love them. If it's all surface, then how are they going to even reciprocate? They can't. You absolutely cannot. Cats. The uh, other thing I have to say is go out there and get yourself a few cats. That always seems to help. Too. I'm allergic oh, to cats. I'm so <laughs> glad you brought this up. I Okay. So first of all, your cats are adorable. Thank you. Um, but I do have to ask, why do they all look so angry? They all have like that angry face. And I think that Jim had the same look every time he got angry in the ring. When I saw, <laughs> it's like that, all, all wrestlers, the they yeah, look mean, but they're actually look. super nice. The eyebrows. The eyebrows. Yeah. It's like, I love your cats. They're super cute, but they look so angry at life. Yeah. No, <laughs> at the, at the, uh, yeah that's good. I love that analogy with him. But yeah, no, I, we just um, love, love animals and stuff. So. So you, you, you bring up animals a lot. Um, so Jim was passionate about animals as well. Oh, he, uh, yeah, he was the biggest uh, animal lover I ever saw, except for maybe my dad and his dad, you know, they were, you know, I remember, you know, so many uh, times that Jim would be, he had this uh, absolutely wonderful little dog named Mr. Peabody. He was a cross between a chihuahua and a pug. And, uh, you know, he was quite amazing. small. He was like maybe about a 28, it's about the size of a cat, 28 inch high dog, but with a little bagel tail and stuff on him. But he was, uh, looked, uh, when Jim was with him, it looked like a Dr. Seuss character and the little dog and they'd be, Jim would be riding on his bicycle with, uh, peeps on his leash, you know, and that was like, they'd ride all around the block and stuff. And Jim always made sure that he was always, uh, you know, pampered. And then at night he would go sleep, um, in the bed and crawl to the bottom of the, uh, underneath the cover, stick his head out and always sleep right next to Jim's feet. And he lived to be 17 years old, Mr. Peabody. And, Every now and again, you'd hear Jim going, Peabody, like that, when Peabody was, uh, you know, kind of exasperating, making him uh, take him out for an extra. That makes me love him even more, yeah, knowing that there's a lover. Mr. Peabody out there running around with Jim the Anvil Nightheart. That's even better. Well, I, I have to say, this little dog, not to get off on a tangent, but when we first got him, my daughter Muffy uh, duped us, and uh, somebody had given her this little dog, and uh, she told us that it was a full-grown, uh, she had said it was like a miniature mastiff or something. The dog was only uh, about maybe six inches tall at the time. Jim and I uh, ended up uh, think getting uh, totally sucked in by this uh, dog, and we took it over to my dad's house to show everybody for the Sunday dinner, and somebody had a pair of wire and glasses and put them on the dog, and they said that it looked like Mr. Peabody from the old Rocky and Bullwinkle show, and that's how it got its Love name. Love that cartoon. So. And, and it wasn't a mastiff. <laughs> it just got this big and never started. That's super, super cute. No, I've actually convinced a few people that, you know, when you meet that person that pretends like they know everything about dogs and they're going to give you, you know, that advice. And I have a bull mastiff, Riley. You know, everybody's seen her. She might be in the studio. I'm not sure. Bull mastiffs look similar to pugs. And more often than not, I have told people like that, that she was a giant pug specially bred and then now you can find them in certain areas and they'll they'll agree with you oh yeah i heard about those i'm like sure you did <laughs> like it's a pull past it i would have had that <laughs> uh, so, so ellie i i want to thank you oh, so my much pleasure for for coming in here and i want everybody to know that when people put in the time and the effort into those moments when they spend time with each other 
the benefits far outweigh anything else out in life. And I want everybody to see that you spent those mindful moments together with Jim. And that's where all of this love fished from enjoying each other authentically. And I got to say, the more that you tell me that you see Jim, you know, always the same at home and the same out there, that explains so much more about how successful and convincing he was because he was always being himself. If you're 100% authentic in life, you're going to go 110% further every single time because people are going to accept you for who you are. And it sounds like you two accepted each other for who you were. And I think that that's something that everybody out there should take away from this. Oh, so thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for that. Oh, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me here and wanting to uh, um, interview. I appreciate it. A hundred percent. Our pleasure. hundred percent. You uh, were responsible either directly or indirectly for the entertainment of millions and millions, starting with your family at home in Canada and the people that they taught and then the people that they taught and they taught. and. Like, if you really think about it, in Calgary, which most people have never been, started something that has gone worldwide a million times around and, like, generations of stuff that, I mean, minus 10 degrees in Cleveland, pours dirt, me and my brother sharing a bowl of cereal watching that. Like, I'll start crying if I talk about it too much, but it's like, I I was the anvil, he was Bret Hart, he had the glasses, I always had a flat top growing (laughs) up, like, broke his ankles both at the same time once, like, crazy story, but not accident, but, like, we just... Like it was, you know, passing the time, like bringing people together. And it was just like the next, it's going to, this is going to last for the next five generations of just what started in Canada. Like it's kind of nuts to think about. Yeah. That's so nice together. to hear. We're, you know, really um, have such a strong fan base from, you know, like from all over Germany and France and Japan and stuff forever since we were little. But, uh, you know, I, we've always uh, loved to know that the, the, the reason that we are who we are and can, you know, live the lifestyle that we live is because of our fans. The fans are everything. We are nothing without the fans. That resonates with them. And I think that we should probably end on that now. We are nothing without the fans. So thank, thank you, you so Jay. much. I genuinely appreciate you being here. Gary, you got anything? I have a million questions, but we maybe should do this again at a different time. We should. I think Thanks. we should. Jesse, we left you out here. Jesse, you got anything? All right. Remember, everybody. Wonderful meeting you all. You too. Likewise. Be cool and keep learning. Thanks. What's up, academics? This is Jay. I'm here to talk to you about Into the AM. This is a clothing and apparel company that I came across last year that has the absolute coolest designs. And the reason why I was attracted to it is because I grew up without a lot of money, like many others, and had to shop on that outlet rack with the irregular items. Things like the fly was over four inches to the left or the right sleeve would be twice the size of the left. It looked like I was growing horizontally. Like, it's okay, honey. You'll grow into your left arm. So you really don't get a chance to express yourself the way that you want to. You go into life, you start putting on suits, you start putting on uniforms, and you realize you'd never had a chance to truly express yourself. Enter into the AM, a team of artists and creators who share a common vision. They see clothing as a canvas to express what drives you. Since 2012, they've developed premium apparel that elevates self-expression and provides unparalleled comfort for wherever your passions take you. Into the AM's passion for change is the driving force behind their brand. They remain committed to creating products that inspire and promote self-expression 
by partnering with like-minded organizations focused on giving back to communities in need. Last year, they donated 1% of all revenue from their graphic tees collection to the Art of Elysium charity. The Art of Elysium is an artist organization built on the idea that through service, art becomes a catalyst for social change. For over 24 years, the Art of Elysium has paired volunteer artists with communities to support individuals in the midst of difficult emotional life changes. They currently offer 110 community programs per month, serving over 30,000 individuals per year. The only permanent thing in life is change. Supporting charities dedicated to helping those going through these changes, trials, and tribulations require a never-ending commitment. The onus is on us as creators to affect change through our true, authentic talents, and Into the AM is the model of how this is done. Their clothes are handcrafted with care. They have a team of skilled artisans that craft each garment with the highest quality fabrics and eco-friendly inks. Not to mention, these things don't shrink, they don't fade, and they fit as if they were designed supernaturally. I'm stopped every time I wear one of the graphic tees to find out where I got it. The colors attract attention from miles, and the art is nothing short of spectacular, with designs for everyone. One of my personal favorites, Twilight Maiden. Go take a look. End of the AM does all of this while putting their money where their mouth is. 30-day money-back guarantee, lightning-fast shipping, and hassle-free returns. The deals are endless. Graphic tee bundles, discount promo codes. Get over there. Check it out. I'm highlighting the tees. But I'd be remiss to not mention that if you want to walk around in the absolute most comfortable shorts, joggers, and basic tees, hit up into the end. I even wear the basics to the gym. Head on over to thetragedyacademy.com, go to our sponsors tab, and follow the affiliate link to the Into the AM store. Help support Into the AM and the Tragedy Academy by purchasing the absolute best apparel and the best designs ever. And remember, academics, be cool and keep learning.